Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Well, good morning, Sound City. Happy Advent to you. Good to see you guys. Uh, as Pastor Aaron said, my name is Shane. I'm also one of the pastors here. For any of you who haven't had the, the pleasure of meeting just yet, we are in week four of our Tale of Two Advents series, and we'll be finishing up this little series on Christmas Eve. I hope you guys will come back and join us for uh, the end of the series. Now, for the last several weeks, we have been, again, as Pastor Aaron said, I've been talking about some pretty Adventy topics. Some topics that matter quite a bit to our understanding of what God the Father was even doing in sending Jesus into the world at his first advent, his first coming. Some topics that matter quite a bit to our understanding of uh, what it means that Jesus is coming again at his second advent, his second arrival. In week one of our series, we talked about hope. We learned about the inheritance of hope that we have in Christ and how a Christian's hope in Jesus is not in any way some kind of blind faith, but rather it's a grounded hope. It's a hope sourced in the reality of Jesus' first advent while we confidently wait for his second coming for his second advent. In week two, we talked about peace. We learned that, biblically speaking, peace is far more important as a topic than maybe we had first realized. We learned that biblical peace means things like completeness and shalom, It means wholeness and being at rest and being reconciled with God. We learned about our calling to peace and how the scriptures consistently admonish us to strive for peace with one another. And we learned about the connection between our experience of peace and our love of God's truth and his statutes. Then last week in week three, we looked into the Advent theme of joy, and we came to understand that joy is a little bit different than the way the world defines this thing of happiness. And we came to see that for the Christian, joy is also grounded in the realities of the first and second Advents of Jesus. We came to understand that we can rejoice always because in Jesus' first Advent, God was making good on his promise of old to send a Savior and a Messiah who would make salvation available to us. And we learned that we can have true joy despite the real grief and sorrows in life because we are able to look past our present trials to a sure hope in an eternity with Jesus at his second advent. And then this week, in week four, we get to turn our attention uh, to gaining a deeper understanding of one of the most central themes in all of Scripture, the theme of, the topic of love. But before we do that, let me pray for us, and then we'll get going from there. Lord God, we give this time to you this morning, and uh, we pray that you would encourage our hearts with even just this little reminder so far of the hope and peace and joy that is available to us in you. We pray that you would teach us from your word this morning, God, as we talk about love, not as the world defines it, but as your word defines it. God, I pray you'd convict our hearts where they need convicting that you'd stir our affections for you where they need stirring, 
that you'd move us to action where you've called us to it through your spirit. I pray, God, also that you'd cause me to be a, a faithful servant to you and to your people here this morning. And I pray all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So where do we start with a topic like love? Love is this huge topic, and to try and cover that in a single Sunday, in a single sermon, uh, probably wouldn't be all that much um, easier than trying to do it in a month of Sundays, I think. In fact, just looking at the primary words for love in the original Hebrew of the Old Testament and the original Greek of the New Testament, we find those words for love count up to 744. So, because I think we'd probably go a little long if we just kind of marched one by one through all 744 instances, we're going to start in a little bit different place. And we're going to do what we've done with some of the other Advent topics and just talk about what do we think about when we think about this idea What do we think about when we think about love? What do you guys think about when you think about love? What comes to mind? Well, many of you know that uh, Stephanie and I have three sons, Dylan, who's 14, Gibson, who is 11, and Colson, who is 7. And as I was preparing for today, I also asked them what they think when they think about love, what they think love is. And I think they actually did a pretty good job. Um, Colson, our youngest, the 7-year-old, said, love is giving hugs. He's so cute. Uh, He said, love is when you bring someone a birthday present on their birthday. (laughs) Love is when someone tells you they love you, he said. And he said, you should also, or he said, love has something to do with your family as well because you have to love each other when you're in a family. (laughs) Pretty good, right? Gibson, our 11-year-old, he said, saying you love someone means that they're special to you. He said, You should also love your parents and be thankful to them since they brought you into existence. That's the words he used. And he he said, love is caring for someone even when they don't deserve it. Pretty good. Dylan, our 14-year-old, a man of few words these days, he just gave me one. He said, love is choosing to inconvenience yourself for someone else. Pretty good. So I may be a little bit biased as their dad, but I, I really do think they, they hit on a number of the elements that a good definition of love should include. But as kids who have grown up in the church and as kids who have no memory of a time when their dad wasn't a pastor, they might also not be the most objective people to ask, right? Because hopefully they have picked up a few things along the way. But what about the culture more generally? How does the world, how does our culture understand love in our day? Well, what I'd offer to you this morning is that culture at large in our day really has no singular, no consistent definition of love. And what I'd propose to you instead is that the only common element in the world's defining of love is that it centers around the self. Said another way, the one thing that large segments of society would probably agree on in constructing a definition of love is that each one of us gets to decide on our own what it means. Does that sound right? We live in a selfie culture, right? A culture that applauds self-focus and self-definition and selfish definitions of love. In a culture like ours, in a culture like ours, in a largely post-Christian culture, we no longer really have these trusted standards of meaning that would guide or enforce a singular definition of love. And so with the self at the center, with one's own 
self being the primary, primary arbiter of what's true, what's not true, we each get to decide. When there's no higher authority than me and my own experience to guide the way, then my experience of a thing becomes my definition of a thing. So love then, from a cultural perspective, becomes whatever I feel it is. And unfortunately, as Christians, uh, we're not immune to these ideas. The sermon being preached by culture, and even more so here in the Northwest than in many places, is a message of love equals acceptance of all possible definitions of love. And if you fail to accept someone else's definition as equally valid, well, then you're just not loving, right? Isn't that the way that that works? And when that sermon, that perspective takes root in the lives of non-Christians and Christians alike, the Bible's claim of authority for framing out a definition of love is denied. And the truth God's made available to us concerning love is silenced at best or mutilated at worst. And it leaves our society with the dominant narrative that biblical authority is some antiquated notion for the simple-minded and for the poor souls who just don't know any better. But Sound City, if we're Christians then we must be a people who let God's word speak loudest and first and with greatest authority in every matter that it addresses, including our understanding of love. And so with that in mind, let's turn to the scriptures then and let's let them speak loudly to us this morning. Let's let them speak with authority to us and let's see if we can grow together this morning in our understanding of this weighty Advent topic of love. And we'll start by going back to our primary passage that Josh read for us just a minute ago from 1 John 4, uh, verses 7 through 12. And I'm going to read that again for us now, starting with verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this, love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, we've already established that the odds are really against us in having any hope to digest all that the scriptures would have to teach us about love in a single sermon. But what we can do is we can begin to establish some basics. And these verses in 1 John, as much or even maybe more so than most other passages in the scriptures, are a great vehicle for getting us there. Thirteen times in these six verses we find the word love. And what these six verses provide for us is all the building blocks we need for building the beginnings of a really good and rich definition of love. And what I want to make sure we don't miss, what I want to make sure we see before our time is up this morning from this passage is four foundations of biblical love. And here's these four loves that we're going to look at this morning. Number one, God's love for God. Number two, God's love for us. Number three, our love for God. And number four, our love for others. Each one informing the next and building upon the last, as we'll see as we move forward. 
But as often the case, the mind of the biblical writer in our text here in 1 John is uh, more set on circular, interconnected passes at revealing God's truth. Sometimes that's how the biblical writers seem to write. And they're more interested in that, and that's part of the, the, the Eastern mind more so than the Western mind, which would want a more formal, step-by-step kind of explanation of the truth. And so what we're going to have to do, if you guys are up for it, we're going to have to do a little dividing, a little parsing as we go and moving some things around. Uh, but before we get to that, let me just start by talking a little bit about this first foundation of biblical love, which is God's love for God. Now that sounds a little funny, doesn't it, when we first say that? God's love for himself, God's love for God. But the basic principle is this, that true love is sourced or born out of the relationship between the persons of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now we get into some pretty deep theological waters pretty quick with this stuff, and for some of you that's exciting, and for others of you maybe not so much, but it's really where we need to go briefly because it's where true love begins in the scriptures. The mystery of the God of Scripture is that he is one and yet he is three. And the doctrine that seeks to make some sense of this truth is called the doctrine of the Trinity. It's a doctrine that was formed in the early days of the church to give common language to the very complex reality of our one God as he reveals himself in the Bible as one God in three persons. And so when we speak of God's love for God, we're talking about each person of God's love for the others. I think the Scriptures themselves will make a lot more sense of this, and so let's go there now. Let's go to John 17, 24, and hopefully that will begin to make the picture a little clearer for us. Jesus there saying, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What Jesus puts on display for us here is this fact that before the world began, God the Father loved Jesus, God the Son, deeply. In John 14, 31, Jesus also says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. So in John 17, we see the Father's love for the Son. Here in John 14, we see Jesus' love for the Father. And then in Romans 5, the Apostle Paul speaks of God's love being this thing that is poured out through God, the Holy Spirit. And while we could look at lots of other passages as well to flesh out this idea further, the big idea is this, that before the world began, there has always, always, always been a love relationship that has existed between God the Father God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And our conception of love, our defining of what love is, has to begin with that truth. It has to start there. This love within God, in between the three persons of the Trinity, is also what rests in the background in our main passage in 1 John 4, 8, when John says that God is love. And this love between the three persons of our one God is also what rests in the background of everything else that's said in the scriptures about God's loving nature and character as well. For example, in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul speaks of God as the God of love and peace. Or in the Old Testament in Psalm 86, verse 15, which speaks of the character of God, the psalmist saying, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
Any right understanding of love, any right definition of love has to start with an understanding of God's own experience of love within the Trinity. And any right understanding of biblical love must start with an understanding that these divine relationships of love were marked by things like sacrifice and care, by promise-keeping loyalty to each other, by deference to one another, and by truth. There's a 20th century American pastor and author, A.W. Tozer, and in his short but brilliant little book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he says this, The divine attributes are what we know to be true of God. He does not possess them as qualities. They are how God is as he reveals himself to his creatures. Love, for instance, is not something God has and which may grow or diminish or cease to be. His love is the way God is. And when he loves, he is simply being himself. God's love for God grounds our understanding of biblical love, and it's the prequel to everything else that will flow from it. And that brings us to our second of four foundations of love that we're exploring today, and that one is God's love for us. God's love for us. And if God's love for God is kind of this necessary and primary foundation for having a right understanding of love, then God's love for us is God's primary outpouring or expression of his love. Now, just a few minutes ago, we saw in that primary passage in 1 John that God is love, verse 8 says. But our passage also shows us logically what comes next. With verse 9 and 10, putting on display the greatest possible expression of God's kind of love. Explaining this way. Verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Then verse 10, unpacking God's great love for us even further, saying, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we've seen in verse 8 that God is love, and now here in verses 9 and 10, we're shown the kind of love that comes from God. A love that takes God's wrath for sin on himself so that we don't have to. A love that sacrifices greatly so that we might live. In Romans, uh, in chapter 5, verse 8, Paul offers a similar notion, saying, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, equally helpful, Paul proclaiming, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So the love of God that we're seeing here, the God's love for us that we're seeing here, it seems like it's tied to a particular set of actions, doesn't it? Yeah. And when we look at the Greek behind the English here, that actually makes quite a bit of sense. The Greek word used for love in every one of the New Testament passages that we've looked at so far this morning is this word agape, a word many of you are probably familiar with. It's a word used more than 250 times in the penning of the New Testament letters. And agape really means godly love in an all-encompassing way. It means having loving affection for or a caring interest in someone or something. It means cherishing or taking pleasure in someone or something. But more than that, agape is decisive. It's a determined love. It's a choosing kind of love. One commentator said, it's a love that keeps to its object. 
And it's a love committed to giving and acting on another's behalf. Not surprisingly then, this is the word agape. It's the word that is used most often for love, to describe God himself, to talk about God's love. And as we'll see a little bit later as well, it's also the most common word for love used in the commands to love that we are given. But the reason I'm bringing this up now is that I want us to to see that it's the same agape love that God had for himself within the Trinity that he loves us with. In all these verses that we just looked at, it's the same love. And why does that matter? Well, what I want to make sure we don't miss is both what's present in agape love and also what's notably missing when we look at the definition of agape love. What's present and unique about agape love is that it is this choosing kind of love, this determined and decided love, a love that keeps its object. But what's notably missing from agape love is any trace of flippant or unsecured emotion. In other words, agape love isn't primarily about feelings. Don't miss that. Yes, there's affection in there. Yes, there's cherishing in there. There's taking pleasure in another in there. But agape love is led by the will, not by feelings. And whether we know it or not, that's really, really good news for us. Because according to many of the verses that we just looked at and lots like it, we were more than just a little offensive to God before he came to save us. So sinful and at odds with him, in fact, that Paul calls us dead in our trespasses. But then in this act of loving decision, not feelings, he loved us by taking on himself the judgment and wrath owed to us as sinners so that our sin's penalty could be covered and so that those who God the Father gave to the Son might gain salvation and eternal life with God. Now that's love, amen? Yeah, that's, that's love. So we've seen then that God's love for God is the foundation for us having any shot at rightly understanding love. We've seen that God is, in fact, love personified. That true love is sourced in God and that it is also from God. And that love's greatest expression, agape love's greatest expression, is found in God's loving and determined and sacrificial act of giving his son to become the means by which we could be reconciled to God. But as we turn our gaze to the third foundation of love, things begin to shift a bit and we get a lot more focused on our response to the truths about love that we've been looking at so far. And that third foundation of biblical love is this, our love for God, our love for God. Now, in our primary passage in 1 John 4, it, again, helps us get started with this point by showing us this really clear connection between God's love for us and then an expected response of our love for him in return. We'll start in 1 John 4, 7 and 8. John's saying, first, that whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And second, that anyone who does not love does not know God. And the premise is this. That if God is love personified, and then if we know him, if we're his, then we will, by nature of that fact, increasingly grow in our expression of agape love as well. In Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, in that famous passage on the kind of fruit that we ought to see in our lives if we belong to God, how does it begin? You guys know the verse. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. It starts with love, and that word is agape there. Paul in Galatians is drawing the same conclusion that the Apostle Paul just showed us. 
that the agape love God pours out on us is the same agape love that we should now in turn allow to flow out of us if we belong to God through Christ. The Bible's really clear on this, that if we belong to him, then our lives ought to increasingly be marked by this spiritual fruit of agape love. And even more specifically, according to the Bible, our expression of agape love is to find its first and primary object in God himself. Let's go to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verse 30, where Jesus here, drawing from Deuteronomy, where this command has already long ago been given to God's people, says this, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now the Greek word under the word love here in Mark is still agape. It's not phileo, it's not eros, it's not storge, it's not one of these other loves that means something other than this full God's agape kind of love. So this isn't a command to just have some affection for Jesus. It's a command that asks us to have for God the same kind of love that he has for us. And he's already shown us the way, hasn't he? The Apostle John says in 1 John 4.19 that we're to love God because he first loved us and showed us how, right? He modeled it for us before the world began with the other persons of the Godhead. And he modeled it for us by sending Jesus to the cross to, in love, accomplish what we could not Sound City, God has loved us with a deliberate and a decided and a choosing kind of love, hasn't he? He's loved us with affection, yes, with care, yes. But his agape love for us is sourced in a loving, intentional decision of his will, not in some fleeting sentimentality or emotion. And God's commandment to us, then, is that we would be devoted to loving him with that same kind of intentional agape love. Let me ask you. Sound City, where specifically is God asking you to grow in your pursuit of loving him the way that he's loved you? What is it that comes to mind when you hear us talk about God's great love for us and that he asks the same thing of us, commands the same thing of us in return? What's the spirit provoking you as you think about that? One of the interesting things you find pretty quickly in looking for answers to questions like this in the Bible is the regularity with which loving well is tied to our actions and more specifically tied to our obedience to God. In John 14, 15, for example, Jesus says it really plainly. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Then in 1 John 5, 3, John says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And then in 1 John, John says, Whoever says, I know him, But does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. Now, our love for God, it's sparked, it's inaugurated only in the reality that he first loved us in such amazing ways that we can hardly comprehend. But what we see here in these verses, loud and clear, is that our expression of God's agape love back to him is deeply connected to our trust in and our obedience to his loving commands, instructions, and statutes, all of which are meant to bring him glory, to bring us joy, to bring us good, and to show the world the truth about the amazing agape love of our God. A.W. Tozer, again, uh, he speaks of our love for God like this, saying, 
For of all the things, the beholding and the loving of the maker maketh the soul to seem less in his own sight. And most filleth him with reverent dread and true meekness, with plenty of charity for his fellow Christians. Tozer, really poetically and beautifully summarizing here a primary message of the scriptures, giving us this truth that if we focus on keeping this greatest commandment first, to love God with all of our being, then we will rightly make our lives less about us, more about him, and more about others as well. And that brings us to our fourth and final foundation of biblical love that we'll look at this morning, and that is our love for others. Starting back in our main passage, back in 1 John, we find the Apostle John making really, really sure that we understand this fourth love. And he starts with a focus on our love for those within the church. The whole passage starts in verse 7 with the words, Beloved, let us love one another. Then if we skip forward a little bit to verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Finally, again then, in the following verse, in verse 12, saying, If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And while we could keep going, and there's really dozens and dozens of verses that talk about this special agape love and this special care that we're to have with one another within the body of Christ, God's call on our life to love others doesn't stop with his call for us to love those within the church family. It extends further, quite a bit further we'll come to see. But right now we're just going to talk about how it extends also to our neighbors. In fact, in the Gospels, that great commandment to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength is often accompanied by the second most important commandment given to us by God, which is to agape love our neighbors as well. In Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39... Jesus adding to that first and greatest commandment says this, And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So then that begs the question, uh, who is our neighbor? Well, that language of neighbor here, what Jesus is doing with that is he's extending the circle of those that we're called to love to include basically all those that we'd come across in our day-to-day life. But when we're careful to look around at the rest of Scripture for even more context, when we look to the Old Testament and we see what Leviticus 19 says, we find not only additional instances of this call to love our neighbors, but we also find a more expanded definition of what it means when he says, love your neighbors. In Leviticus 19, verses 33-34, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt once. If we listen closely here, I think we can hear this echo of the New Testament's passage in 1 John 4.19 that we looked at already, in its command that we are to love God and others because he first loved us. Leviticus here saying, you were strangers once and I loved you, now go do the same. But God's love and his command for us to love others stretches further still. In Matthew 5, 43 through 48, Jesus tells us, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is saying here, pursue perfection in loving in this way, even in loving those who you might consider your enemies. Is that convicting to anyone this morning? Sound City, in God's love for God, he has shown us where true love is sourced and where our definition of love ought to begin. In God's love for us, he's exemplified what true agape love is through the decided and sacrificial and affectionate choosing kind of love that he's loved us with in Jesus. And in turn, then, God calls on us to live out that same agape love for him through our devotion to him, through our obedience to his commandments and statutes, and through our love of others, from our Christian brothers and sisters, to the neighbor, to the stranger, to the foreigner, and even to our enemies. And as we sit here this morning and as we consider the, the vastness of the love God has for us and of the love that he's called us to, I think there's both good news and bad news. The bad news is that if we're gut-level honest, I bet there's not many of us in here that would say we're killing it in this department, right? Not many of us would say that we're loving God the way that he's loved us in the fullest sense. No, we don't, we don't love him that way, not really. And our love for others isn't expansive enough either, if we're honest, right? At least not in the way that we've seen God call us to in various scriptures this morning. But there's really good news for us in this message today as well. News that's worth celebrating as we get ready to turn to a time of responding here and celebrating in song. Number one. Good news number one. We're works in progress. We're works in progress according to scriptures. And when we take the time, like we have this morning, to worship God through the study of his word together, God is not still. In here this morning, as we learn about God's love and how we ought to love in return, he's active in his transforming work in us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Be encouraged. Be encouraged. It's also really good news that for any of our failings in living out God's call to love like he does, the scriptures say, the scriptures we've read already this morning say that we have been equipped with literally everything we need in order to grow in loving him and in loving others in all the ways that he's called us to because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, the scriptures say. Is that good news? And then good news number three. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, God loves us. God loves you. And learning today that his love doesn't waver for his people and that his agape love for us is not born of fleeting emotion or feeling, but of a decided act of his will, well, that ought to give you, that ought to give us peace and joy beyond measure, peace and joy that passes understanding. Amen?
Amen. Well, let me pray for us, Sound City, and then we'll begin a time of response together as well. Pray with me. Lord God, we thank you that your love for your people is decided and permanent. We thank you for giving us your spirit that through him we might extend back to you and then on to others the agape love with which you first loved us. As we turn to our time of response now, God, we pray that you'd bring to mind those whom you'd have us actively pursue in sacrificial, decided acts of agape love. And then in the days to come as well, that you'd continue to teach us how precisely you'd have us do that. Because we need your help. And we pray all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, with that, we will now turn to a time of responding to what God's been teaching us. And we'll do that first uh, through giving. So if our financial stewards would come, we'll go ahead and begin our response through giving. Now, if you're new, if you're a guest here, uh, it would be good for you to know that the way that we view this time of giving, we view it as a time of worship, just like all the other elements of the service, where we get to worship God with the money that he's entrusted to us, when we get to give back to the work that he's doing in and through uh, the people of Sound City. But if you're a guest, if you're new, uh, you're under no obligation to give. We wouldn't want to take that opportunity away from you, but please don't feel any pressure. You're not under any obligation to do that. Now, for those who will give, just a reminder of the heart with which we want to give. That comes from 2 Corinthians 9, 7, which says, Each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So please be giving with that heart in mind. And if you have questions about how to give, uh, beyond the baskets that are coming around, there should be some information on the screen. There's also information about how to give at the bottom of your weekly, or you can talk to the folks at the Connect Desk in the foyer after the service, and they can get your questions answered for you. Now, in a moment, you'll see communion baskets with communion elements in it coming around as well. Uh, if you would, when those come, just take one and hold on to it, and then we'll take those together here in just a few minutes. But before that, I've got a few discussion questions and prayer points for us to chew on uh, from out of the message today that you can consider throughout the week with your community groups and in personal reflection. These are on your weekly, but I'll read them for us here as well. Number one, what surprised you and what convicted you in our study of the four foundations of love that we considered this morning and why? Number two, how does it impact you personally that the greatest commandment given to you in Scripture is to agape love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And in what ways is God asking you to grow in living out a response to that commandment? Number three, what's the relationship between our love of God and our obedience to God? How is that an encouragement to you, and in what ways does that cause you to struggle? And how is God asking you to respond to the reality of this uh, relationship between love and obedience to him? Number four, the fourth foundation of love we discussed was our love for others. What specifically is God commanding us, commanding you, to do in each area of the scriptures that we talked about with regard to loving one another, with regard to loving our neighbor, the stranger, and our enemies? Which ones are easiest for you? Which ones are hardest? And why is that? Talk about that with your groups. A couple of prayer points to get us started as well this morning. We can be praying that individually and as a church that we would grow in our experience of God's love and in our love of God and in our love for others. We can also be praying that uh, 
the love that we show to one another as a church family, that that would be convicting and con- a convincing witness of both God's love and his offer of salvation through Jesus, especially for those who don't know him yet in a saving way. Now, another way that we will respond is through communion or the Lord's Supper. Now, this is a memorial meal to us. It's a a time where we take these elements, the bread reminding us of Jesus' body broken for us, the juice reminding reminding us of his blood shed for us. The scriptures themselves actually give us instruction in this. And I'll read a little bit of that from 1 Corinthians 11 while the elements are being passed. It says, starting in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, it looks like most of you have the elements by now, so I'm going to pray for us here in a minute, and then uh, afterwards we're going to respond uh, worshipfully through song, and then at that point, feel free to take those communion elements uh, and, and, and take them as you see fit, and then when you're ready, you can stand with us and worship with us as well. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond. God, you are the God of love. You are the model of love, and you have called us to love. So I pray that you would cause us to be increasingly known as a people who love you really, really well. That you would cause us to be increasingly known as a church that loves one another exceedingly well. And that you would cause us to be a people always found growing in the extending of agape love to our neighbors, to the stranger, and to the ends of the earth. We love you, God. We pray all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.